George. I'm Ludith Lopate. For 2,000 years, humans have attempted to summarize their ever-growing knowledge in vast works of literature known as encyclopedias. They have evolved during that time in regard to language size, intent, cultural perspective, authorship, readership, education level, background, interests, capabilities, and the technologies available for their production and distribution. In his latest book, All the Knowledge of the World, the Extraordinary History of the Encyclopedia, Simon Garfield takes us from ancient times to the Encyclopedia Britannica and most recently to Wikipedia. The book is published by William Morrow and brings Simon Garfield to our show now. Welcome. Hello, Mr. Lopez. I think we've talked before, haven't we? Yes, but uh, not about encyclopedias. Uh, not about encyclopedias. No, I think maybe about maybe about maps or typefaces. A previous book, yes, a, a, a different era that that was. You begin this book by describing your purchase of a set of the Encyclopedia Britannica dating back to the 18th century for a very modest amount, and then seeing offers, including one for a whole set for just one penny. What happened? Yeah, people <laughs> people cannot clear their shelves fast enough of old encyclopedias. The, the the basic thinking now is that we have everything on our computers and uh, Wikipedia, as you mentioned, or even on our phones. Mm-hmm. Um, so who needs a big old dusty set of thirty-two old, you know, encyclopedias? Um, so yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right, and I went on to eBay and I trawled through charity shops and uh, you can now pick up, um, uh, you know, quite recent sets. I mean, sets Mm. from the 90s uh, for, you know, hardly anything. I mean, in the end, um, I I didn't get that set that that would have cost me one pence, uh, but I did... Uh, bid on the the most recent edition of uh, Encyclopedia Britannica, the last update from uh, 2012. And a woman uh, in Cambridge, of all places, was selling the whole set. I think it was 32 volumes, maybe 34 volumes. And she had all the supplements and everything else. And she was selling them for £30. So that's, I guess, the equivalent of of about, you know, 35 Dollars and um, it cost me more in petrol, I think, to pick them up than the actual than the actual cost. And my my poor little Toyota was kind of heaving on the way back. But for me, this was um, an absolute treasure. So they have uh, no they have no value as collectors' items. Hardly any. I mean, there are some. If you're you know if you are a collector of encyclopedia. Botanicas. There are some that have um, a va- value. Uh, the, the edition from 1910, 1911 is, is a sort of collector's item, and there are some rare ones, but, but essentially, no. Um, they are, um, unfortunately, seen now um, both by you know, individuals and institutions as well, uh, libraries as well, as just um, surplus to requirements. Isn't the earliest surviving encyclopedic work the Naturalis Historia, written by Roman statesman Pliny the Elder and published exactly what, 77, exactly. 79 AD? Do we know why Pliny wanted to record all that he knew about the ancient Roman world? <laughs> 
Well, I think there was a human instinct, really, to, to, to record everything that we, we know and write everything down that we know. The, the one that he, I mean, you're, you're spot on. It was, it was um, just before uh, Pliny the Elder uh, died um, in the aftermath of um, Vesuvius. He went, and, he went to uh, investigate the strange cloud that had begun to arise from Mount Vesuvius, yeah. and then he was killed when the mountain was erupted. Correct. Yeah, I think uh, it's never, never a good idea, really. It's like, you know, going going too close to, to any any fire or explosion is probably never a good idea. But uh, that's exactly right. And it was continued by his nephew, uh, Pliny the Younger. Um, and um, it was... It was sort of the first ancient encyclopedia insofar as an attempt to gather everything that was seen as important um, in that, you know, at that time. Uh, it wasn't ordered the way we now would order encyclopedias, um, you know, in alphabetical order. Uh, and obviously what interested them were things like... I don't know, you know, rhetoric and, you know, those kind of things that, that, that now would, would, would just get a, a very, very small entry uh, in, in, in uh, the modern encyclopedia. But that was the first attempt to sort of order everything that we have. A lot of that information came from travellers, you know, travelling from foreign lands saying, oh, we've seen this and they're trading this and, and these people look like this and, you know, those kind of things. Uh, so it wasn't the most uh, reliable or accurate thing yeah. but uh, it does still um exist um in fragments uh it, it was it was reprinted in italy actually where i'm talking to you now which is uh from venice in italy and uh it was reprinted here um in the 15th uh, century 1470 um, with the invention of the printing press it became exactly one of the first right, classical yeah. manuscripts to be printed but you mentioned that you couldn't always trust everything in it um for example there was an entry about the shopadai people whose single foot could act as a sunshade <laughs> yeah, and that also appeared on uh, maps, uh, in fact. That's right. So if you wanted to block out the sun, you would use your huge, enormous foot. Um, and, and this was a classic example of a traveler's tale. It, it was sort of Chinese whispers in a way. So, you know, it would be passed on from, from um, explorer to explorer. And we've seen these incredible people. People, uh, who do this and perhaps these I mean who, who, who are we to say that these people did not exist uh, but there, yes there is a there is a lot of myth and there is a lot of uh, fable and, and myth throughout uh, the very early encyclopedias. Does his original manuscript still survive? Uh, the manuscript uh, not, I don't think, and uh, maybe in fra fragments, mm -hmm. um, but uh, or, or may, 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 maybe all over uh, various uh, museums, certainly not in one place. Were other Romans and Greeks also attempting something like that? Yeah, they were. I mean, it's it wasn't. It wasn't the industry that, that you know we know it. It became um, in the 18th um, century, but people were trying to compile, you know, classic example, Great Library of Alexandria, uh, sort of everything that we uh, knew. 
um, it tended to be libraries that people were interested in. So they would get all the great books and they would get scribes. So again, people would come in with manuscripts and they would be either taken off them as sort of, you know, the price of admission to Alexandria, say, or they would be um, copied by, by scribes and put in um, great libraries. But uh, Pliny's um natural history as as you know the english version is called um this is is certainly the 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 only one um that 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 can be seen as comprehensive in the way that we now see you know the encyclopedia britannica as comprehensive well, where does the word encyclopedia come from so it comes from uh, it comes from the ancient greeks and uh, the the exact uh, phrase is uh, if i can I, I don't want to mis- misquote it. Is uh, now, if I can pronounce it as well, is enkikleos pedeia, which means learning within the circle or uh, an all-round education. Uh, and this was the, the the sort of desired thing. It was like, I mean, it was like any good kind of education then. Um, and so, and that then became. Uh, the, the you know the word of of, of, of uh, a person who knows everything we we now say has an encyclopedic um, you know knowledge of a subject or is a walking encyclopedia um, and that act, phrase actually went also went actually back to uh, to the ancient uh, Greeks um, and the idea of of something being learnt in the round meant you had a good um, you know, comprehension of a lot of things. It didn't mean you knew everything, uh, so the, the knowledge was slightly um, different. And the and the, uh, when when the first encyclopedia that we we sort of acknowledge as such, uh, i.e., one you know in alphabetical order, um, the the, uh, the 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 author of that, or the person who put that together in uh, I think seventeen in the 1720s in uh, London, uh, dropped the E-N, so it just became the cyclopedia for a while. And the, the alphabetical thing was because they were inspired by the dictionaries of the 18th century? Exactly, yes. I mean, the, the encyclopedia that we know it from the 18th century onwards was really a, a fuller version of a uh, dictionary. So... Um, it, it was, it, you know, you just had a lot, you had a lot fewer words, but you, you know, so far as the dictionary had all the known words and obviously encyclopedias had the ones that we, we knew uh, more about. Um, but the, the uh, that was uh, the main inspiration. But there was quite a lot of debate about how one should present knowledge. So it was seen... Um, that the alphabetical way was the simplest way and the way that you could find uh, information uh, most easily. But a lot of people at the time um, in the 18th century said, well, this is ridiculous. You can't order knowledge in an alphabetical way. Um, and what you need to do is do it thematically. So in, in a way, the very first encyclopedias actually had both, including the first uh, the early Britannicas also had had both, so you you would have, uh, you know, Aardvark at the beginning, uh, but then you would also have sort of almost pull out sections on what we knew about physiology, uh, say, or architecture, and those would have special sections, and those would be much uh, lower, uh, much uh, longer, and it was it was quite a while. Um, I think probably 
fairly well into the 19th century that we abandoned the thematic thing entirely and we just went alphabetically. I mean, interestingly, now, of course, if we use Wikipedia, we don't look anything up alphabetically at all. It's sort of a nonsense. We wouldn't look for, for knowledge in that way. So it's sort of, it's gone back, I suppose. Well, one of the most famous early encyclopedias was printed in France in 1751, the Encyclopédie, I guess. According to its editor, Diderot, its aim was to change the way people think and allow the bourgeoisie to expand their knowledge. So he saw it as an educational device. Yes, exactly. I mean, he was inspired by by the one that that I just mentioned that that was um, you know made in London. That was a two volume set, and then he thought, well, actually, what we can do is um, do a very similar thing. Um, and Diderot was um, a philosopher and a writer, and uh, he was also heavily involved politically in in the early Enlightenment and was trying to sort of change France. He was a, he was a, a proto-revolutionary, if you like. And he um, thought, OK, two volumes will do it. Then they got into it and realised, no, two volumes won't do it. And what we need is, I don't know, um, you know, 20 volumes. In fact, they ended up with, uh, I think, 35 uh, volumes in all. Um, and uh, he had two... Aims, I suppose. I mean, I, I've, I have a quote here where he, where he hoped that, and I think he says, um, he hoped that our descendants, by becoming more learned, may become more virtuous and happier, and that he also hoped we do not die without having merited being part of the human race. Um, so we had that, which was purely knowledge-based, but there was also a tinge there of political improvement. And he had to actually um, sort of tread very carefully uh, that um, what he wrote uh, wouldn't be, um, wouldn't wouldn't sort of anger uh, the ruling aristocracy. Well, it's in the years much. leading up to the French Revolution. Um, right. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Simon Garfield, whose latest book is All the Knowledge in the World, The Extraordinary History of the Encyclopedia, published by William Morrow. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Your first chapter is about Andrew Bell, a Scottish printer and engraver. He was famously odd-looking, very short, weird legs, extremely large nose. But are his looks relevant to the story? (laughs) (laughs) Well, they were relevant because they were his sort of party piece. So his his nose uh, was uh, huge. It was a a sort of Cyrano de Bergerac kind of uh, number. And um, wherever he would go, he would um, he, he would he would put on a, a pap- well this was in, in you know if we were some sort of party or big public event he would put on a papier mache nose mm. which was even larger than the one he had because he wanted to make um, a point of it that he knew everyone was talking about how, how he looked um, so he was a um, yeah he, he was he was uh, the first um, co-publisher of the um, Britannica. And Did 500 um, engravings. He, he was an engraver. He, he began uh, purely as an engraver. He did, I mean, normally engrave, you know, um, he engraved sort of, you know, landscape, landscapes and portraits. But he, he, was, he was a bit down at heel at, 
a point so he a point so he did dog collars as well anything really and so he was employed initially for his engraving um, skills uh, but the uh, his partner um, Colin McFarquhar and these were both um, gentlemen of uh, Edinburgh um, thought that well um, we can make a bit of money out of this you know we can actually put something together that the well healed and the well to do and the people who wanted to be thought of as part of a intelligent uh, elite um, were going to to buy uh, so it, it, it began very much as a as a commercial enterprise because um, the they thought press okay was, so we have this uh, the printing oh, press had already been invented a while earlier oh yeah no of course i mean we're talking we're talking now about i think 1768 was the first uh britannica and they it came out in part works um so you would have uh, it would come out letter by letter and so um you would often you know you would have to wait a few weeks if, if you got a then you would have to wait for b and and um so on um, and actually what, what happened was that they, in the classic thing of, you know, how a child something, well, I'm sure I've done this anyway, you know, if a child writes a birthday card, you would maybe run out of space after you'd written birthday or something. And uh, it was a bit like um, the case with the first Britannica as well. So the, the first letters in the alphabet had a huge amount of information uh, in them and then they ran ran out of i think money pay, paper uh, they thought actually this is going to cost us too much if we um have um letters m to z um as full as we've had um you know a to a to l and so um they uh, they 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 sort of cut their cloth a bit and and, and shrunk the later um entries um, so, which sort of confirms, I suppose, their, their kind of commercial interest in it. And they got to edit it, a, a man who was a bit of a jobs worth, really. He, uh, he, he, he was, he was more of a, he was, he was a, he was a sort of compiler, but he, they got him out of the alehouses. He was, he, he did like his drink, um, uh, the first editor uh, who was called, uh, you know, chosen by a man who had a big nose. This guy was called um, Smelly, Andrew Sm Smelly. And he he was basically, um, he would take on any job and he got paid, I think, 200 pounds. So what, what that would be, what, $250 in those days um, to... Um, work for four years and it was sort of a cut and paste kind of job um so um, the thinking was that the great thing about the encyclopedia would be that if you bought this thing you wouldn't then have to buy any other books this was this would be the only book or set of books that you would ever need but um, initially uh, cut and paste but didn't later editions also use specialized contributors and over the years oh, some of the, the oh people who contributed are some of the most Famous people in their fields, Albert Einstein, Sigmund Freud, Orville Wright, oh, Alfred sure. Hitchcock, Marie Curie, Absolutely. Indira yeah, yeah, Gandhi. Yeah. No, and I've got a, yeah, yeah, I've got a, I've got a, 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 a sort of a big list here, um, which I want to, I'm going to hunt, hunt it down and I will, I will, mm. I will find it. Yeah, no, a huge list. I mean, what happened was that in the, it took about it took about a hundred years or so for uh, the editors to realise actually what we can do is not only get the best anonymous people. So they would, you know, after a while, they would get the best people from Edinburgh University, essentially, and and other you know top um, universities and colleges to to write 
you know, their expert views about, you know, their particular subject. But then in the um, at the end of the 19th century, and then especially the 20th century, I've got a list here of people that they did em- employ. I mean, you've mentioned um, some of them, Leonard, but so Alfred Hitchcock would write on uh, movies. Um, Margaret Mead would write on child psychology, J.B. Priestley on English literature, Orville Wright would write about his brother Wilbur. Mm. Um, uh, Ray Fawn Williams would write about folk song. Gene Tunney on boxing. Helen Wills lawn tennis. So uh, you know, this was these were then sold as celebrities. So you know, they once once Britannica began advertising widely, uh, these people would say, um, you know, not only is it good enough for. Um, you know, Orville Wright, who obviously got a free set and would pose with his wonderful Britannica, but he actually wrote for it too. Um, what I found interesting is that they each got the same amount, uh, which wasn't very much because it was a great privilege to be asked um, to, you know, uh, to to write for Britannica because it meant you were the world expert in your in your field. Well, actually, um, there so were much- some variations because you note that in 1926, George Bernard Shaw received $68.50 for his article on socialism, while Albert Einstein received $86.40. <laughs> <laughs> for his piece yeah. on space-time. Okay. I don't know. Were those I mean, considered good prices? I, I, <laughs> that was considered not very much for, for the time that I think Albert Einstein tried to explain, you know, space-time theory in whatever it was, you know, 2,000 words. He must have found that incredibly difficult. You know you know that that saying, um, I'm, I'm sorry, this is such a long letter, I didn't have time to write a short one. It's a, It must have been a bit like that for him. So I don't know whether he got $20 more than George Bernard Shaw or whether that was just a trick of, um, of, of, of um, the... Uh, the, the the exchange. So I, I imagine George Bernard Shaw got paid in pounds and, and Einstein in in uh, U.S. dollars. So I think that might have been uh, the, that uh, that might have accounted for the discrepancy as much as anything else. Well, but it wasn't just a European interest. You note that for sheer skill, the winter is Yongli Dadian, who was commissioned by Zhu Di, an emperor of the Ming Dynasty in China. It had 11,095 manuscript volumes, so large that it was too big to print, and only one copy was made. Yeah, and that that was then burnt uh, in huge fires all over. There were Why? tiny fragments, a bit like the sort of Dead Sea Scrolls or something, and uh, small amounts existed. Yeah, it was it was a, an incredible vanity. Pro, pro project uh, by a Ming uh, di- di- dynasty emperor uh, to make the, this thing. And um, he would send out, I don't know, you know, thousands of people to gather knowledge and, and, and write. And he wasn't happy with the first version because uh, he didn't feel he was big enough. It wasn't that it wasn't good enough. It just didn't seem large enough for him. So he then sent out um, more of his... Um, you know, disciples or servants or scholars to 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 kind of write more, um, and uh, yeah, it it was um, it it was a monstrous thing, as you say, too big to print, um, uh, even now or especially now, perhaps. 
And you say it was destroyed, even though the Chinese government had employed hundreds of scholars to assemble encyclopedias yeah. from the 10th to the 17th century? Yeah, it was centuries. destroyed. I mean, accidentally, it was destroyed in various um, fires. Um, and so there, there is... There are, there are small amounts of, of the Yongle Dadian, which actually had many names as well. Um, and most of it uh, are in various uh, museums and libraries in uh, Beijing. What about other uh, parts of the ancient Eastern world? For example, the 6th century Indian astrologer Varahamihira. Uh, <laughs> He he w was uh, focusing on astronomy mostly, but also the manufacture of perfume and even toothbrushes. Yeah, they was. I mean, if we're going if we're going back, um, I, everyone had their spare spare specialism. I mean, what what also happened? I mean, this happened all this happened throughout the history of encyclopedias. Is that I suppose it happens now in publishing as well. Um, and you know we you know we write about what we know and if if I was a commissioning editor, I would know certain people who would write very well about certain things so uh, vara would would be employed um to write about perfume and that his passions i think um so certainly before the you know the the, the the commercial enterprise that we under, un, uh, understand from uh, Diderot and then Britannica onwards. Um, these were very kind of random um, collections of information, um, and uh, they they often had uh, specialisms that we would think now wouldn't merit more than I don't know, you know, a, a page or two. But then a spare a specialist who would spent their whole life working on a particular area, thought, oh, no, this demands, you know, 30,000 words, and that it would get in. Uh, and people would buy it, partly, I think, because, I mean, they wouldn't, you know, they, these wouldn't be sort of bestsellers, um, but people would buy them and libraries would buy them because they would think, well, this is an expert writing about something that, you know, he or she knows, mostly uh, male, and um, they would uh, they, they would be experts, and uh, we'll will you know we are happy to 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 take on their information. But uh, they couldn't all have been objective. For example, the first known encyclopedia of the medieval period is attributed to Saint Isidore of Seville in his Etymologie, which he wrote around six thirty. I'd, I'd imagine that it reflected. Uh, Catholic ideology. Yes, exactly. I mean, there, there's w w what happened again. Uh, the, these weren't what we would call, you know, necessarily objectively edited, peer-reviewed things. These were things that, that that reflected the worldview of the time. Which is why um, I think these are so interesting. You know, we know about the medieval ages. Um, you know. That, that sort of basically just was interested in any Christian ideology. Anything else was was regarded as you know unimportant. Um, and uh, I think I think what what's what's interesting about the uh, early ones is I mean I mention you I drop in the book I drop a few of these in as 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 examples of of what we um, would regard as early attempts 
at trying to to ga- gather all the knowledge um, together. They aren't really what what we would sort of understand in any way as um, objective things or necessarily terribly reliable things. They would be very opinionated and, and uh, very subjective. No less interesting because of that, and they, uh, but not think. Go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, no, but not things that we would then necessarily uh, now regard as, uh, as, as you know, impartial. Yeah, so we now know what they thought about uh, things uh, based on, well, their religious and, and other, and what they, what they uh, were bringing, the information they were bringing to things like astronomy, weather, architecture, and as I mentioned, the manufacture of perfume in that yeah, book. Yeah, I mean, it, it must be said, the manufacture of perfume is fantastically important because uh, you, well, the, the, you know, the key ingredients of things like perfume, coumarin, for instance, you know, then went on to, uh, to, to enable us to make a sort of, you know, explosives and uh, other things and then dyes and you know all of that uh, but I think um, I think what's you know one thing that I try to get across in, in, in the book and you know we began by talking about how um, printed encyclopedias now don't have um, the value that I would I would argue they d- deserve um, is it I agree with you. I think the scholarship of any age is still scholarship. Um, and uh, just because we now can access information in a millisecond and uh, search for anything and find any amount of views, expert or not, online, um, doesn't mean that what came before um, does not have value and in a way that's sort of the underlying premise of the book and really why i wrote the book uh was 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 to show that not only does wikipedia have some sort of you know um uh history to it uh but you know it's built on you know shoulders of 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 giants so actually what happened was that when wikipedia uh began um Although people would volunteer information in in a very haphazard way, the core knowledge that Wikipedia relied on was an entire out-of-copyright edition of Encyclopedia Britannica from 1810 and 1811. And that was their sort of first knowledge dump um, that, that they used. And they would update it as they could. But, I mean, in a way, that that sort of proves... You know, proves the point that that you know, if you've got a very very good history about I don't know the um, early days of the railway or some sort of obscure uh, Austro-Hungarian war, it is still it is still hopefully fairly fairly the facts in it are, are still hopefully um, fairly solid, and those are the things that, as I said, Wikipedia in the very early days, two thousand and one, two thousand and two, um, relied upon. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Africa or Antwerp or Alaska or Aberdeen, Zaire or Zurich or anywhere in between, you can find out about places in the Encyclopedia, Aristotle 
I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Simon Garfield. And if you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, All the Knowledge of the World. To do that, just go online to give2wbai.org. That's given the number 2wbai.org. Or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of London Lopate at large. And if you become a BAI buddy for $15 or more or make a $100 contribution to WBAI during Women's History Month, you can receive the Women's History Collection as your gift to you. It's a great 79-hour collection of restored audio recordings dating back to the earliest days of community radio broadcasting in 1949, culled from over six seasons of weekly radio programs from BAI and our sister stations on the Pacifica Radio Network. So ask for the Women's History Collection when you call us at 212-209-2950 or go to online, in this case, women.wbai.org, to become a BAI buddy with Lopate at Large as your favorite show. And we return now to Simon Garfield, his book, All the Knowledge in the World, Extraordinary History of the Encyclopedia, is published by William Morrow. He's the author of a number of books, including Mauve, about the history of purple, Just My Type, about the history of type fonts. His book, To the Letter, was one of the inspirations for the theater show's Letters Live with Benedict Cumberbatch. And his study of AIDS in Britain, The End of Innocence, won the Somerset Mom Prize. Um, now, I, we were going kind of through uh, history. Uh, we, uh, we, we come to Byzantium. The, I don't know how many of these different things you want to do with the Renaissance. In each case, uh, we get new attempts and new approaches, don't we? Yeah, it, I mean you're you're right. I mean, I in the book, I I try not to spend kind of too long on uh, the the kind of the ancient history because, as we talked about before, the the, the encyclopedia really got going in the 18th um, century. Um, printing became cheaper. Uh, the reading public became wider, um, and commercially, these things became. A, a sort of going concern. Uh, before, what tended to happen was that these were um, these were kind of rare things for rare libraries commissioned by um, um, well-to-do um, aristocrats or, 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 or uh, people in uh, power. I think. But, I think but, what I was. Sort of, but in the twelfth yeah. and thirteenth century, handwritten encyclopedic works were being created by a wider range of people, including the Hortus. Uh, Delicarum, uh, which is what, 1167, 1185, by Herod of Landsberg, thought to be the first encyclopedia written by a woman? Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, and do, was, we see the, do we see that reflected in the way it's written? <laughs> well, I, it, it is. It is interesting. The the I haven't. That's not one that that I've I've read. Mm -hmm. um, partly because uh, there was a, a language uh, barrier. This was not something uh, that, that had any kind of, uh, as I said, you know, commercial impact as such. So I, I mentioned that more as a contrast to how poorly women had been represented by. 
and in encyclopedias um, sort of through history. Uh, I suppose that shouldn't be a surprise, um, be it a disappointment. Well, women um, so, and, and uh, racial minorities are not always treated well. No, I mean, the, the, we'll get on to racial minorities in a second, but I just wanted, just because it's a slightly alarming entry, the, the first entry uh, under women in um, Encyclopedia Britannica was um, female of man, and then it said underneath, see homo. Mm -hmm. So you then had to go back and read about men. Um, so that was sort of extraordinary. Um, and things did improve um, a little bit um, as, as, as time um, went on. I mean, what happened is, that, you know, the classic encyclopedias from the, the 19th and 20th century, there were a huge amount of women, uncredited, uh, working as, you know, working as, in admin and as secretaries and um you know doing the i suppose the you know the the big labor the big research the fact checking uh whereas uh, and, and the men would would obviously gallivant around and say i'm, I'm great and, and get all the credit for their uh work um i was i was pleased uh, i mean the the book began i don't know um if if you're interested in this but it began because i got an email from a woman who was called Catherine Ma, who was then um, editing Wikipedia. And it was um, one of those emails that you hoped is addressed to you, but of course isn't. It's addressed to five million other people. And it was one of those ones I got because um, I'm sure if you, you know, anyone who uses Wikipedia um, at, at any point, after a certain time, you see a little banner on top before you're almost allowed to read your information which says please don't scroll past this but you know wikipedia is an independent thing and we we don't have um you know we don't have advertising and everything else and um we uh, would love it if you gave us five dollars and uh, the minute you give five dollars of course they've got your email and then they say uh, six months later I got this email from the woman who runs Wikipedia saying, uh, thank you so much for contributing. And would you consider another five dollars or another 10 pounds or whatever it was? Um, so I thought, OK, well, she's written to me and I'm going to I'm now going to write to her. And it was coming up for Wikipedia's 20th anniversary. So I thought, OK, well, maybe she do a piece. And I wrote a piece for Esquire um, on, on on the anniversary of Wikipedia, you know, the rise the rise and rise, but obviously lots of things went wrong with Wikipedia and lots of mistakes and all of that as well. Um, and um, and then pretty much halfway through writing the piece, I thought, actually, this is very interesting because, you know, we, we assume now that it's all free and it's all there and it's all true. But where did this all um, begin? So I was happy to talk to a woman. Um, that woman, actually, that I, I talked to, we did a, a Zoom chat. I watched her eat um her partner's sourdough in San Francisco, where where Wikipedia has the headquarters, uh, and she's now uh, she's now left, and there's another woman um, in 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 charge, um, an Egyptian a woman, incredibly smart, whose name, of course, I can't remember, um, and she, um, and so that's great, and uh, the, there was no doubt that through the um, from about the I don't know eleventh or twelfth edition of Encyclopedia Britannica, more and more women did have more and more of a role. And 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 therefore, you know, made made very valuable um, and signed 
um, contributions uh, as, as well. Um, uh, yeah, it was a... Well, let me quote you. Long you long. write, what is and isn't valued knowledge and how best to present it has been the recurring headache of every encyclopedia editor in history. And you include some peculiar entries from various volumes. <laughs> Tell, uh, tell, tell me which ones you're thinking of. Well, I'm just thinking about some of the things that uh, we, we were alluding to uh, on, in terms of uh, sex and race. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I've got one from... Um, I've got one Technology, here from, um, sexuality. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. I've got, I've got one here from, from the fourth edition, which is um, about 1800. And uh, women get a slightly better looking, only so far as women are actually included in the in the in the argument. But they, uh, they, it's it's yeah, it's as sexist as it comes. Uh, mm. It says the man uh, is comparing uh, men and women. The man, more robust, is fitted for severe labour and for field exercise. The woman, more delicate, is fitted for sedentary occupations and particularly for nursing children. The man as a protector is destined by nature to govern. The woman conscious of inferiority is disposed to obey. So you, uh, you, I say in the book, one may at this point believe this to be a parody, but it is not. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, some of the, um, you know, the, the, the idea of uh, homosexuality um, being accepted only came in in about the 1960s, um, and th that was um, and still isn't then, in it, some it, parts of this country. But that's a whole other issue. That's a whole other argument. Yeah, and now, and you know the way the way that we spoke about um, other races. So you, one has to remember that you know um, Britannica was very much uh, an, a, a, initially a British empirical colonial view of the world uh, and 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 when 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 it became an american um uh, owned product in in the 1920s and it moved ownership moved from from um, initially edinburgh and then london and then cambridge and then it moved to chicago um the the the, the view initially of people who weren't sort of british or american or white was was you know xenophobic to say the least and and uh, it, it it didn't yeah we didn't we didn't as Brits, we didn't like anyone who, who didn't look um, like us. Uh, we have very little time left, but I do want to address uh, what has happened more recently. Uh, obviously, I, my generation grew up with encyclopedias, although we were too poor in my family to have a Britannica. I, th uh, I, th I can't remember if we had the great book or something like that. Um, oh, right, yeah. But it, it helped children um, with the, their the homework. World, the world book. Was, the world was book, a, the world book. A part, the one, yeah. And then uh, hard copy encyclopedias were eventually replaced, first with searchable CDs, more recently by Wikipedia and other uh, digital resources. Uh, now, Britannic was printed for 244 years, make it the longest running in print encyclopedia in the, in the English history. Um, it was uh, in 2010, before it was moved online, it was 32 volumes and uh, over 32,000 pages long. How much has Wikipedia plundered the Britannica? 
Well, as I said, I mean, the f one edition, they planned the whole lot, which is, uh, the, the, you know, uh, an edition from 110 years ago that had only recently gone out of copyright. And they thought, OK, we'll, we're going to use the whole thing. We're going to di digitise the whole thing, um, correct or, or, or not. And we're going to give it to people for free. Uh, th this was, as I said, this wasn't, you know, anything. This was anything but the latest um, edition. Um, but it was, um, as I said, you know, still of, of some uh, value. And it certainly helped Wikipedia expand uh, the number of um, pages uh, that it had. Uh, because it began, I mean, the interesting thing about Wikipedia now, it's a sort of behemoth. It's, you know, it's, it's I, I've got some figures here. You know, th this is from... This is from, from September twenty nineteen. Uh, sorry, September twenty twenty two. So, um, you know, six months away uh, ago, um, Wikipedia had twenty four billion page views. Three billion of these were in the U.S. Six and a half um, million articles. And that was yeah, complete I mean, with images, videos, voice clips, and more. Yeah, I mean, just it's 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 a. I think, by and large, it's a fantastic thing. And, you know, I, I sort of, I was very keen to, to emphasize in the book that I, I, I was anything but a lard-eyed. I didn't, I didn't want to get the impression or give the impression that, that you know, that I, I didn't like, you know, digital information or, or, or the, the incredible speed and the incredible range of information uh, that's on Wikipedia. It's very hard to find you know, any topic uh, of any you note know, that, that isn't on Wikipedia and is by and large accurate. Uh, what people often don't understand about Wikipedia is that it used to be a bit of a Wild West show and you could you could sort of do, you could get, get you know, make any contribution yourself and you could you could put on any nonsense now there are gatekeepers and there are very strict editors and m all the information on there has to be somehow sourced so you have to have a reference point for where you got that information now that information may also be wrong of course but you can't just make things up as you could maybe in the in the early days well, one of my favorite it still entries. includes a lot um, of inaccuracies, I, I know from personal experience uh, about some that, of the yeah, Have you, uh, well, uh, that's a question for, for you. Uh, uh, is, is your entry anything like accurate? Uh, it has inaccuracies. I don't want to go into them right now because uh, <laughs> it's personal. Uh, yeah, but I, mean, I don't know too. how to, to correct it. Well, there are there are ways you you can um, you can go in and in fact they at the top bar they sort of exp there are various sort of you know things you can click and and uh, appoint and if things are wrong uh, they are very happy to correct them what what you what they're less keen on doing for obvious reasons is um you know for people to uh, edit their own information and and and, and yeah well that's you know, what I would have to build do. themselves up and and say things that maybe I would do that obviously. But but uh, we have to end this, unfortunately. I'm so sorry uh, okay. because I'm having so much fun talking with you. My guest is Simon Garfield. His latest book, All the Knowledge in the World, The Extraordinary History of the Encyclopedia, published by William Morrow. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Uh, well, I enjoyed it. It was nice talking to you.
And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support BAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. In fact, to keep this station coming to you because we are going through a rough time right now. And that's why you've probably been hearing a lot more fundraising than you used to. Uh, Well, we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give in the number 2WBAI.org because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, All the Knowledge in the World by Simon Garfield. So, why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950. Go online to give to WBAI.org. We hope you'll consider becoming a sustaining member as well, what we call a BAI buddy for $10, $15, $20, $25 a month. And if you become a BAI buddy for $15 or or more or make a 100 contribution to WBAI right now, a $100 contribution, you can receive the Women's History Collection as our gift to you. It's a great 79-hour collection of restored audio recordings dating back to the early days of community radio broadcasting in, in 1949, and it's been culled from over six seasons of weekly radio programs from BAI and our sister stations in the Pacifica Radio Network. So ask for the Women's History Collection when you call us at 212-209-2950 or go to online women.wbai.org. W-O-M-E-N.WBAI.org and become a BAI buddy with Leonard located at large as your favorite show. Now, here's WBAI's program director, Linda Perry Barr, with some more information about that. 